podcast one production. It's February in the year 2000. It's a bitterly cold, dark, blustery, snowy day in New York City. And yet, folks came out, they were gathering at the Empire State Convention Hall, lured to an event with a tagline, Find the Others. This was the first and only DisinfoCon. Disinfo was an early blog, a compendium of the weird and the unexplained, and a lot of just plain paranoid and conspiratorial, all shared with an ironic twist by site creator Richard Metzger. Here's what he had to say when he opened the conference. With the new media tools we all have at our disposal, all of us, with the inclination to make our voices and opinions heard loudly, can now more fully participate in the debate. Think about it. There is more free speech today than there has ever been at any point before in history. Very simply, the need to fill hundreds of television channels and radio stations and movie theaters and newspapers and magazines with content caused consensus reality, fed to excess, to burst like a piñata. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. That future looks a lot more mixed than it did 19 years ago as we get the full measure of Richard Metzger's prediction. The media did burst open like an overstuffed piñata. Billions of people now create and curate and share their own social media. That's changed everything. It's changed the news. It's changed how we report the news. It's even changed how we make the news. And it's changed us, or rather, it's shown some of our best and worst qualities amplified to gigantic proportions. Perhaps there's no one who understands this better than Dana Boyd. For 15 years, she's been studying how teenagers and all of the rest of us use social media to create, to curate, define and refine our worlds, our communities and ourselves. Can we handle all of this sudden oversharing or are we too about to burst like overstuffed pinatas? Dana, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with this idea of the fact that social media is now being used almost as a jamming tool. It's used to bring voices to people who feel they don't have voices. What does that look like when it pops up sort of into the public sphere? I think we have to recognize that it was designed to give voiceless populations voices. But the imagined population of voiceless were those were who have been historically marginalized, um, you know, the communities of color, low-income communities, um, you know, LGBT communities, etc. 
I think what has shifted in the last you know couple of years is the idea of who feels themselves to be marginalized and what does that feeling of marginalization look like when you have tools of amplification. And one of the things that you're starting to see is populations who, for various historical reasons, would have had tremendous opportunity and power um, who are experiencing some form of downward mobility. Um, perhaps that's because, you know, they're living in a dying empire. Perhaps that's because they are, uh, you know, not having the same level of resources as their parents. And those groups, that feeling of instability, insecurity, um, and that manifestation in the form of, of anger uh, has enabled a new kind of violence. And that violence takes place in a digital environment. So what we're seeing is, you know, everything from lashing out uh, and blaming others, where whether that population of blame is, you know, immigrants, whether that population to blame are, you know, women, um, whether that population to blame are communities of color, and seeing these tools of amplification uh, as an opportunity where they can get very toxic messages uh, into people's experiences. And I think this is the funny thing to me about, you know, social media, which is that it was very much designed to let people speak and scream very loudly, but it was never imagined to say, hey, some speech is pretty darn toxic and not everybody wants to experience that. And so what we've seen is this, you know, recoiling, right? You know, I think I, I particularly am interested in how women, you know, starting five years ago or arguably longer ago, started saying, wait a minute, I don't want to log in to the internet every day and be faced with such, you know, horrible aggression and sexist commentary, misogyny, you know, images of me, you know, put into a pornographic structure. Like this is, this is heart-wrenching. And I think what's tricky is that no technology developer was ever really prepared for what that would look like at scale. Do we now start to see the fact that we've built the social media amplifier and we can see now people using that to get their messages across? Can you give us an example of what that looks like? What happens when someone who has an intent not just to amplify their voice, but to amplify a message of hate, how do these systems then end up being put to their disposal in this? I mean, I think there's multiple versions. The simplest um, is to create a coordinated response and go after somebody, right? This is this is what we see in terms of harassment. I think, you know, 2014 is where we started to see the real rise of coordinated doxing, you know, which is just helping identify somebody's, um, you know, personally identifiable information, calling up their employer, you know, sending them hate messages. So you can imagine what it looks like for a coordination attack of anything from bots to, you know, a lot of individuals piling on, just storming uh, somebody's Twitter feed, right? That's sort of, in some ways, the simplest version. Another version of it uh, can look like the ability of, um, you know, for example, using advertising. Uh, I'm A good example is that uh, a pretty well-known troll uh, who's adopted white supremacist and white um, nationalist ideologies, you know, took on Twitter by paying for advertisements to identify people that um, were interested in topics related to social justice and racial justice. And he sent advertisements to them that uh, included a lot of extraordinarily racist messaging. Um, and that's, you know, 
a way that you can actually use the monetary system um, to get a message across. Another, you know, way of working is to destabilize what is reality, which is often referred to as gaslighting. And it refers back to an old film called Gaslight, um, which is, you know, basically depicting domestic violence where the, you know, key character, a female character, couldn't tell what was reality or not because her um, partner was going out of his way to make certain that she couldn't tell, remember where the keys were. Or she would look and the keys wouldn't be there and she'd look again and the keys would be there and it was just constantly confusing. And so another way of just, you know, amplifying hate is to make it so you can't tell what reality is. Um, and that those moments of, of instability at scale uh, lead people to anything that they can hold on to. And that's where, you know, when we look at processes or practices of radicalization, much of it is about getting people to doubt a world around them and then to look for other explanations. You've identified this as red pilling. Could you talk about that? Well, it's not my term. Um, red pilling is a term that has been adopted. Originally, it was adopted, of course, post-1999 in the Matrix. People talked about the need to wake up to reality as it was constructed. And um, amongst communities who identify uh, with certain, certain ideologies, including, say, neo-reactionary communities, they imagine that the idea of red pilling is to both wake up to a world that is... Um, uh, you know, where, where corporate and financial interests have been constructed and conspired to produce, you know, what we what they refer to as the deep state, um, where they can imagine that, um, you know, there is, you know, th- that the, you know, what they think of as the feminist agenda is there to, you know, harm men, or where they think of, um, you know, efforts around multiculturalism as, you know, very much working against whites. So they have different frames for which they then talk about it. And that's sort of what it means to, to talk about, you know, to be red pilled or to, to wake up to that. And then there's this notion where, um, to red pill someone else, which is to purposefully invite somebody else to come down a path. And perhaps it's best seen through an example. Um, in uh, the United States, uh, after Trayvon Martin uh, was murdered by um, George Zimmerman, um, there was a lot of uh, you know outrage in the United States about what was going on. There was a lot of media coverage, but many people didn't understand what was happening. Um, and there was particularly notably a teenage boy in South Carolina who, after hearing this phrase over and over again, talking about like you know who these characters are, who Trayvon Martin is, he decided to go and search for this, and he ended up on the Wikipedia page, um, which. Which, you know, we normally think of as, um, you know, an arbiter of, you know, different content to produce a form of performed neutrality. But in the process of reading this um, article, he came across a phrase, um, black on white crime. And so he turned that phrase, black on white crime, and he searched for it in Google. And the first thing he came across was a site that is very much espousing uh, white supremacist and white nationalist worldviews, and he started reading that content. 
And that linked him to YouTube videos, to various online fora, and he dove deep. And, you know, we were able to see him sort of go through this process of looking at all this content, and he wrote a manifesto describing where he all went. Uh, he began to adopt some pretty toxic worldviews, and he walked into a church in South Carolina and opened fire, um, murdering uh, a group of black churchgoers after spending an hour with them at a Bible study. And this is an example of somebody who is open to um, conspiratorial and extremist uh, ideologies, having been exposed to something that was strategically placed online, that phrase was strategically placed on Wikipedia and in other places, to then open up what Michael Golbieski refers to as a data void, which is that when you search for a phrase like black and white crime, what you encounter is pretty darn toxic. And that, of course, let him go on an exploration. Now, you can imagine other people wouldn't have gone on that exploration, but he did. And so part of what's tricky is that you're seeing these new moments where the links of technology allow people to start from a place of curiosity and end up in, in a place of deep intolerance. And that's where we all step back going, whoa, how did that work? What were those links? Why did he interpret the content the way he did? And then why was he moved to take, you know, action in the form of, you know, terroristic violence um, that he did take? So we have this idea now that we've built algorithmic systems, Google and Facebook being, I guess, the standout examples that will very carefully watch everything we do online, try to abstract from that the things that we're interested in or would be interested in and then feed us more. Has that then sort of turned our normal interactions on the internet into a kind of amplifier of all of these tendencies so that if we're looking in the right place for the right message, we're going to find something which will lead us because of the algorithm to the next message, to the next message, to the next message. So I think part of recognizing the, the work and the power of that algorithmic system is to recognize how it gets manipulated. So it is one thing if you log into YouTube to watch your you know, favorite music video to then be exposed to a new music video that's sort of of a new topic and you're so suddenly exposed to new content. And that's what we normally think of as a, a major win, right? Where we think of it as, as deeply destructive is where you start trying to ask a simple question, are exposed to something and then recommended to things that are more and more toxic, right? And this is where, you know, we see people complaining about how that deep toxicity happens. Well, that deep toxicity doesn't occur just because of the algorithmic system and the obsession with, you know, getting you to watch more videos or see more content. It happens because it's also manipulated, right? So Google, for example, has long battled search engine optimization, you know, efforts, right? People trying to make money by making certain that their content is at the top. And they've gotten smarter and better at it. You know, it's, we've come a long way since the early days of spam, but it's still not perfect. YouTube, YouTube is a disaster. Um, and keep in mind that YouTube is the primary search engine for the under 25s. So my colleague, Becca Lewis, you know, recently uh, released a report where she highlighted how a group of people who had adopted a range of views um, from, you know, the idea of, you know, enforced monogamy all the way through to much more extremist perspectives had basically built an architecture of linkage to each other. So that they would appear on each other's videos or they would reference each other in the comments or through links. 
And so they built the connective tissue that would allow YouTube to then recommend a video of more and more extreme perspectives when somebody starts out watching one of those videos. And those kinds of exposures are, you know, basically one part YouTube and one part, you know, gamification. They're further magnified by the way in which a lot of uh, groups who are trying to, you know, invite people to particular ideologies um, specifically use terms, right? Which is that they, you know, help capture terms and try to own terms to invite people along those paths. And this is where, you know, one of the things you see from a lot of people who use services like YouTube or, or even Google is that they think they're being exposed to the wide range of possible perspectives, right? They think that Google is a curator, and that's the sort of work of Francesca Tripodi. Um, but in fact, of course, Google's trying to figure out what's the best, most highest ranking link to give you, to recommend to you based on your query. And if your query starts out with deeply problematic phrasing, you're likely to already end up in a, in a world, right? Like, if you start out by asking a question of, like, did the Holocaust exist? You're not going to get to anywhere positive because no one's producing reasonable content on that phrase. But then there's, of course, moments of capture. So if you search for a phrase like social justice on uh, YouTube, you will find a whole set of content that is designed to suggest that that phrase, that frame, is a product of, you know, leftists and must be undone, which is not usually what people would think you would get when you search for that phrase. And part of it is this way in which you see the system being strategically captured. So that's where I think the key to understand is that it is one part, the algorithmic recommendation system, the ability to go link to link to link, but it is also one part, you know, that some people are far more incentivized to manipulate those systems either through, for, for economic reasons, as we saw historically with spam, or for ideological ones. So we also have this idea that you've been talking about around strategic silence, that in fact the media can also serve the purposes of these, I guess we can call them bad actors, but people with very specific agendas. And listening to Jay Rosen talk about the future of journalism and how journalism is really going to become much more centered around serving an audience that it's going to be directly connected to. And now listening to you float this idea of strategic silence, where the media has to think very carefully about how the messages it's amplifying will in fact impact what it's trying to cover. How do we find a middle path? Could you explain a little bit about this idea of strategic silence and talk about how we sort of figure out how to walk? that road between amplifying and protecting? So my colleague Joan Donovan and I were really interested in understanding the history of why journalists made the curatorial decisions they made. She was interested in how after the KKK had started to um, figure out how to use the media to amplify their messages that uh, journalists sort of came around to a practice where they decided that they would not help recruit for the KKK. I was interested in the long history of how journalists learned how to be very smart and how they would report on people who died by suicide in order to not produce copycats. So the literature there talks a lot about um, what they refer to as a journalistic practice of strategic silence. What I found in talking about that term is that it outrages pretty much every journalist on the planet, where they're like, don't tell us to be silent. You know, we, we're always being told to be silent. It's our responsibility to report. And I would argue, absolutely. Journalists have uh, an imperative to, you know, report 
report out information that is extraordinarily valuable and important to the public. But just as journalists would not print the phone number of the you know local head of the KKK in order to help you know him recruit, they shouldn't also be reporting information that would help you know or you know basically what I think of as digital calling cards, so things that would help recruit in the online environment. So for me, you know, I've been shifting it, and Joan and I've been talking a lot about shifting it to strategic amplification. At the end of the day, every news outlet makes decisions about what to amplify. They're in the business of amplifying, right? And that is, you know, one part curatorial, that's one part deciding how to invest limited amounts of resources for investigation. And then they figure out how to tell a story to inform the public in a responsible sense. And the question is, you know, who is playing you? So, you know, journalists have spidey senses being like, okay, when is it that you know, a government agency is trying to get them to sell government propaganda. They also have spidey senses to figure out when a corporate PR unit is trying to get them to basically, you know, tell the corporate line. What they're less experienced doing is figuring out how networked groups of people might operate to try to get them to sell a particular narrative or to set up a particular frame. And so my encouragement to journalists is to start recognizing, just as uh, you know, the various militaries have had to realize that they can no longer just do top-down, coordinated, institutionalized warfare, that networked warfare is where we're at. This is networked information warfare. And as a result, journalists are actually part of that front line. And so they have to be able to develop the mechanisms to realize when they're getting played. And the huge chunk of that is to realize that they can't go at it themselves, right? There's only so much information that an individual journalist is going to be able to pull up. And so there's this interesting question of how does journalism go from being an individual ego-driven sport to one that is in many ways collaborative to say, okay, they're toying with us in this particular way. You know, is this something we want to amplify to our audiences or not? How do we get smart about that? You know, and to make that more concrete, I think there's a lot of ways of reporting on complex issues without amplifying, you know, the kinds of horror that goes on. So a good example is the there was a uh, terrorist uh, situation in Toronto where a man ran over um, a group of people, uh, you know, using a van. The journalists quickly tried to understand his motives, completely reasonable, and they encountered some uh, Facebook content that suggested that he was part of various online fora. And they quickly latched on to a term that the public had never heard before, and they used that term to center all of their reporting. Now, they could have talked about how he, like, you know, the the young man in Santa Barbara, had basically adopted some deeply toxic masculinity. They had decided to blame feminists for, um, you know, their failure to be able to find a date. They could talk about sort of all of these sort of really, really grotesque worldviews. They didn't need to use that term. By using that term, they amplified it into something that people then searched. And what we saw, of course, was that an amazing flood of people suddenly started joining these forums because they now had a term to find other people and that allowed them to go from a curious state to one where they started to adopt some more and more extreme views. And that, for me, is where strategic amplification comes in because it's a lot like you know reporting on suicide. You report smartly. You report thoughtfully. You report to make certain you communicate to you know the the public what they need to hear. You don't recruit for people who are trying to move people towards extremism. One of the most important things for journalists to realize is that when they provide a cheeky 
cheeky title to their news article, to their you know radio show, they assume the reader or the listener is already paying attention and that the title is fun and memorable. And I think it's important for you know journalists and the public more generally to actually be smart about pe- what people are looking for and make certain that they land on high quality content, not the content that's been purposefully manipulated to, to reach them. We're talking to Dana Boyd. We will be right back on the next billion seconds. And we're back talking to Dana Boyd about algorithmic culture, social media amplification, and where this is all going. So, Dana, one of the things that we've started to see now is that as we start to use these algorithmic systems, and Google is sort of the one that everyone is most familiar with because everyone uses it most of the time, that these systems can start to produce some very unintended side effects. And one of the areas that this shows up most clearly, although most people aren't aware of it, is in image search, right? Oh, yes. So image search is funny because you have to start with asking, why do people do image search? So imagine a search like uh, baby. Why would somebody search for baby? Mostly people are searching for baby in order to find images for marketing purposes or for their PowerPoint. And because a search like baby is something that you know aims to get people to see these sort of high quality images for their powerpoints um, you know different kinds of photo producers different kinds of stock photo uh, outlets um, want people to see their image in you know a small version so that they will then go and buy the big version or license the big version to um, you know use for their marketing campaign or their powerpoint and so they basically spend a lot of time optimizing stock photos to be found under a query like baby. Well, what does that mean in practice? That means that the pictures that you get when you search for a term like baby are um, basically the images that uh, the stock photo companies think you're most likely to buy. First, it's notable that even though we might talk about baby as a wide range of ages, you get a very narrow sense of ages when you look for baby. The next thing that's really noticeable is that those babies are all perfectly posed. The images are very sweet and, you know, beautiful and well lit. And the other thing that you will quickly notice is that those babies are almost all white. And that doesn't matter if you search for baby in English or whether you search for baby in Bengali. You get white babies. Okay, now what do you make of this, right? So let's now think about how the data appears in those image shirts. First, you've got the SEO of those stock photo companies, and then you have all of the other baby pictures that everybody in the world posts. Well, guess what? We don't tag most pictures baby. We tag those pictures with our kids' names, or we tag those pictures of like, look, he's, you know, picking up a ball now. Isn't that cute? And so as a result, uh, you know, Google, who's trying to read in the metadata, try to read out in the content, they don't know what's in that image. They know what the metadata is around that image. And so as a result, they pull in all of this material that's like, you know, these are the pictures that talk about kid with ball, and these are the pictures where somebody is labeled baby. Clearly, if someone's searching for for baby, we need to emphasize the pictures of baby. Well, you know, this is one thing when we talk about baby where we get a very sort of racially skewed worldview. But now let's talk about a whole set of other topics. Things like, you know, CEO. 
what it, what does it mean that most of the images that we get of CEO aren't actually real CEOs? They're stock photo CEOs. And if we get something that's labeled as CEO, we have to rely on, for example, news sources that actually labeled some, somebody CEO. And it's interesting because they don't label everybody CEO. They're far less likely to highlight that, for example, a woman leader is a, is a CEO as part of the metadata around that person. So we have this sort of interesting weakness in the data infrastructure combined with long-standing historical discrimination. There are far fewer female CEOs out there than there are male CEOs, all sort of serving as a perfect storm on, on search engines. Right? And this is where when we start to look for identities or make sense of things, if we suddenly start to say, what would CEO, what would a search like CEO mean if I'm trying to imagine what a CEO is like? For example, you know, the seven-year-old who might be searching for this term for their school project. Well, the stock photo companies are not trying to prioritize that seven-year-old search. And so the the way of their motivations and what they're framing for for um, you know, the possible person who's running a marketing campaign um, ends up colliding with what that seven-year-old starts to see. The seven-year-old sees that these are a ton of pictures of people that don't look like her, right? And so this is where it's a really interesting question then of what is the purpose of search and how do we contend with the idea that people come to search with so many different motivations, so many different goals, and we're trying to resolve them through, you know, very uh, imperfect data, very poorly labeled data, data that reflects all of these biases within society and all of these weaknesses within the architecture of how we think about information. And it goes back to that search. Are you prioritizing that your images on Instagram are there to reach your friends or are you prioritizing that they're for search for anybody looking for baby? So are we actually moving then more to a world where we have automated so much of what we're doing when and we're inside the world of knowledge, which used to be really an entirely human sphere. But now that world is now mostly machines. And that world is now designed around algorithms, which both are being gamed, but are also sort of amplifying the things that we want to see. Are we starting to lose some of the capacity to be able to sort of check ourselves as we're exploring a topic? And if so, does that then mean that we now need to step back and have a rethink and go, okay, look it, we can do these amazing things with data, but they also now seem to carry a whole set of dangers and we need to start to build systems to protect us against those dangers. So I think the way to think about this is that the algorithmic systems mirror and magnify the past. And if we want our future to look different than the past, we have a problem when we rely heavily on this. So think about the work of um, Adam Kalai and his colleagues. They realized that one of the ways that uh, you know search natural language processing systems worked is that they used um, older texts, like you know literature, in order to train their system. Well, so then imagine what would happen when you searched for you know, a phrase like, uh, or, or, you know, search for something like doctor, okay? Well, guess what? In almost all literature that you could possibly train a system on, a doctor is going to be identified as male, right? And so the doctors are labeled as male. And then imagine, of course, what you get when you get nurse, right? And so when you say doctor is to nurse as, um, uh, let's say, programmer is to, right? Guess what? 
the systems send back something that is extraordinarily sexist, right? Because the, the idea is that these, are, these systems have long associated these terms with a gender. So the question then is how do we make a very intentional intervention? And that's where I'm really, you know, excited by the work of the Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning community, which is sort of a sub-branch of computer science, who's saying, wait a minute, we are not going to be able to build better systems when we train them exclusively on the past. If we want to make intentional interventions into the future, we have to be conscientious about it. So, like, let's talk about that in a totally different domain, something like um, predictive policing, right? Predictive policing is about predicting future criminal activity based on past arrest records and past arrest activity. Well, if in the past we've predominantly arrested, you know, people of color, what it means is that the system is just going to train to say, please go arrest more people of color, right? And that is, that is exactly what we don't want, right? And so how do we then purposefully look at why the training of the past data has led us to a problematic place and what are the interventions that we can do to remedy that. And that means that we have to rethink what our computational models are, what our uses of these technology on, where, where they belong, do they even belong in policing, do they belong in criminal justice? And if we decide that they do belong, how do we purposefully make remedies to address the mistakes that they've been trained to do? So we now are starting to come back to this idea that, yes, we can have all these algorithms running wild, but we're going to need humans in the loop, in some sense to monitor, in some sense to ensure that there's justice or equity, but also maybe to keep them focused focused more on the future than just drawing from the past. But we're also starting to see how the human being, when they're in this loop, now becomes the point that can be blamed. So, for instance, when Uber had a self-driving car that was entirely algorithmic, when it killed someone earlier this year in Arizona, they did all of their analysis and they basically just blamed the driver for not having their hands on the wheel at the right time and all of this. Are we going to start to see a world where in order to address the excesses of all of these algorithms, we're going to see more people involved and therefore more people being blamed for the problems the algorithms are causing. In some ways, this, of course, goes way back. This is, this is at the core of how we architected bureaucracy, right? Bureaucracy was designed to put people and to, to, to blame people rather than to actually blame systems. And, you know, as bureaucracy hit technology, sort of new things formed. So I'm particularly fascinated by the work of my colleague Madeline Ellish, and she was trying to understand um, a set of regulatory decisions in the United States around the Federal Aviation Administration, which, of course, decides um, how we deal with, you know, all things planes. Um, and she was interested in a lot of their decisions around um, uh, basically autopilot, right? The early, the, the cruise control for the planes. And, you know, there were all these debates about what it meant to turn planes over to autopilot. And should that mean we remove pilots from the cockpit? And the decision in the United States was that uh, 
it would be imperative. We needed to have a pilot in the um, in that seat um, in order to take over from a plane when something would go wrong. And the idea was that this pilot should be well equipped to you know take over because humans were supposed to be smarter than than machines. Um, but of course, what it meant in practice was that that pilot uh, hasn't really flown a plane for a very long time. They've babysat autopilot for years on end. And when things go terribly awry with that, uh, you know, that system, the, you know, pilot is supposed to step in totally out of context, respond immediately to a crisis, usually in record speed, and correct that wrong. Now, here's the dark secret of this. We know that autopilot means that planes are much safer than ever before. But when autopilot fails, those planes usually crash. And when those planes crash, the pilot usually dies. And as a result, we tend to blame the pilot for the eventual crash, not the various things that led up to why the pilot was not well equipped to be able to make the decisions in that crisis moment. And that's where we have this question, you know, akin to your point about, um, you know, autopilot in the car of like, to what degree is that um, person actually serving a role of as a liability sponge? Are they owning the liability? And Madeline refers to this whole process as a moral crumple zone, right? A crumple zone being the part of your car that sort of absorbs all the pain upon impact. So what it means to put the human to absorb that. And that's where we, when we have to look at these systems, we have to look at what is the role of the human in the system? Are they being empowered or are they not? So let's talk about a situation where they're empowered. I'm on the board of an amazing um, uh, counseling service called Crisis Text Line, where we try to analyze, you know, texters who are in crisis, we try to analyze different aspects of their data, you know, different interactions between counselors and, um, and texters in order to better train and better empower counselors to be responsive to texters. That works well because it's all aligned to do everything possible to help those textures, to help the counselors, to help those textures. All of the, and you know, the alignment is really there. But then if we say, take those same recommendation processes and put it into, say, a criminal justice context where you're trying to give scores of information to um, judges in order to make decisions, well, the thing about judges is that they're often elected or they're hired, and if they make the wrong decision, um, they, it's very political. So as a result, they're sort of, you know, typically forced out. So it means that a judge is very happy to go with the algorithm and the resultant score when it tells them what the judge had already decided. But if the judge's personal decision contradicts what the score might recommend, they're very hesitant to go against that score because it's much easier for them to blame the score if they got it wrong than it is to bl be blamed for going against the score, you know, if, if the, if, if, you know, it's in the reverse. And so this is where you have to really look at all of the different incentives and the alignments, you know, what does it mean to be experienced it? What does it look over time to question what is the role of the human in that process? Are they there to be empowered decision makers or are they there to absorb liability? So it's interesting. What you're pointing at is the world that we're living in is sometimes we get to hide behind the data and then sometimes the data gets to hide behind us. And that's the painful part of where we have to recognize that these technologies have tremendous power, but the power really comes from how we've positioned them in society and what we're using them to do. So another colleague of mine, Alex Rosenblatt, 
uh, just wrote a book called Uberland, where she looks at what algorithmic management looks like and what it means to actually, you know, force people into a situation where they don't have somebody that they can negotiate with, a boss, um, to really figure out, you know, how to navigate an issue. Instead, they're constantly responding to and trying to game an algorithm as their employer. And that is actually the real strangeness of a system like Uber, which is that you suddenly have this dynamic where, you know, we're putting technology into place in order to not have to make some of the hardest decisions. And we have to really step back and say, is this actually going to create a level of social accountability that we like? Or is this going to lead us down a place of, you know, division and divisiveness? Dana Boyd, thank you so much for joining us at the end of series two of The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you for having me. I recently saw the fantastic Spike Lee film, Black Klansman. It's a true story about a black man who joins the KKK with a bit of aid from a white collaborator. Now, toward the end of the film, this is after a scene where he's formally inducted into the KKK by the Grand Wizard, David Duke. All of the Klansmen and their wives sit through the screening of a very famous film, Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation is more than a film. In many ways, it's the very first film. It's the first piece of cinema that uses storytelling and camera techniques that feel natural to the medium. And because of that, Birth of a Nation was the first blockbuster success. Only there was a problem. You see... Birth of a Nation was about the American South after the Civil War and all of the anarchy and chaos and ruin that was wrought by that conflict and about a group of patriots who came to the rescue, the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was born in the South immediately after the war, but by 1915, 50 years later, it had all but died out. Birth of a Nation brought the Klan back to life by amplifying its message of racial vilification and bringing it to millions of Americans all across the country. The birth of cinema, well, that was a moment where a bit of strategic silence could have avoided a renaissance of organized racial hatred. We've covered quite a bit in Series 2, from deep fakes with John Elsop to the future of energy with Ramez Nam and local politics with Jess Scully and banking with Andrew Davis. And then we really started to dive into how technology and reality are doing a bit of a dance that's creating, well, we don't have a word for this new world, even as we see it forming around us. So we looked at technology and utopia with Eric Davis and then toward virtual and augmented realities with Tony Parisi. And then we took a deep dive into Facebook and profiling and manipulation in the last days of reality. We asked quantum questions of Claire Edmonds and Virginia Frey. We got vaporized with Rob Tursick and asked Jay Rosen if there's any future at all in journalists digging for the truth. We've shown you that the future is both more complicated than it looks and that the shape of that future is entirely determined by the decisions we make today. To be responsible, to be aware, to understand when and how to best amplify and to be silent.
Dan has given us a lot of links to work with, and we'll be linking to all of those and to her outstanding keynote at the recent Republica conference. So look for all of that on our website at nextbillionseconds.com. So has this conversation gotten you to thinking about our responsibilities? If so, we would like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, send us an email, tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Now, while this brings Series 2 to an end, we're not slowing down. Next week, we'll resume with Cryptonomics, five episodes dropping over the month of October. And then in November, we have something very special planned, a look back that's also a look forward. We've got great shows coming nearly every week through the end of the year. You'll want to be here to listen. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.